Chapter 7 of The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matthias Whitney. The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. Chapter 7 Internal Causes Continued. First, among the specific causes of disturbance operating within the Church and contributing to its apostasy, we have named the corrupting of the simple principles of the gospel by the admixture of the so-called philosophic systems of the times, the attempted grafting of foreign doctrines on the true vine of the gospel of Christ was characteristic of the early years of the apostolic period. We read of the sorcerer Simon, who professed belief and entered the church by baptism, but who was so devoid of the true spirit of the gospel that he sought to purchase by money the authority and power of the priesthood. This man, though rebuked by Peter, and apparently penitent, continued to trouble the church by inculcating heresies and winning disciples within the fold. His followers were distinguished as a sect or cult down to the fourth century, and writing at that time, Eusebius says of them, These, after the manner of their founder, insinuating themselves into the church, like a pestilential and leprous disease, infected those with the greatest corruption, into whom they were able to infuse their secret, irremediable, and destructive poison. This Simon, known in history as Simon Magus, is referred to by early Christian writers as the founder of heresy, owing to his persistent attempts to combine Christianity with Gnosticism. It is with reference to his proposition to purchase spiritual authority that all traffic in spiritual offices has come to be known as simony. Through the mouth of the revelator, the Lord reproved certain of the churches for their adoption or toleration of doctrines and practices alien to the gospel. Notably is this the case with respect to the Nicolaitans and the followers of the doctrine of Balaam. The perversion of true theology thus developed within the church is traceable to the introduction of both Judaistic and pagan fallacies. Indeed, at the opening of the Christian era, and for centuries thereafter, Judaism was more or less intimately mixed with pagan philosophy, and contaminated with heathen ceremonies. There were numerous sects and parties, cults and schools, each advocating rival theories as to the constitution of the soul, the essence of sin, the nature of deity, and a multitude of other mysteries. The Christians were soon embroiled in endless controversies among themselves. Judaistic converts to Christianity sought to modify and adapt the tenets of the new faith so as to harmonize them with their inherited love of Judaism, and the result was destructive to both. Our Lord had indicated the futility of any such attempt to combine new principles with old systems, or to patch up the prejudices of the past with fragments of new doctrine. No man, said he, putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment, for that which is put in to fill it up taketh from the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break, and the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. The gospel came as a new revelation, marking the fulfillment of the law. It was no mere addendum, nor was it a simple reenactment of past requirements. It embodied a new and an everlasting covenant. Attempts to patch the Judaistic robe with the new fabric of the gospel could result in nothing more sightly than a hideous rent. The new wine of the covenant could not be bottled in the time-eaten leathern containers of the mosaic libations. 
Judaism was belittled and Christianity perverted by the incongruous association. Among the early and most pernicious adulterations of Christian doctrine is the introduction of the teachings of the Gnostics. These self-styled philosophers put forth the boastful claim that they were able to lead the human mind to a full comprehension of the Supreme Being, and a knowledge of the true relationship between deity and mortals. They said, in effect, that a certain being had existed from all eternity, manifested as a radiant light diffused throughout space, and this they called the Pleroma. The eternal nature, infinitely perfect and infinitely happy, having dwelt from everlasting in a profound solitude, and in a blessed tranquility, produced at length from itself two minds of a different sex, which resembled their supreme parent in the most perfect manner. From the prolific union of these two beings, others arose, which were also followed by succeeding generations, so that in process of time a celestial family was formed in the Pleroma. This divine progeny, immutable in its nature and above the power of mortality, was called by the philosophers Aeon, a term which signifies in the Greek language an eternal nature. How many in number these Aeons were was a point much controverted among the Oriental sages. Then one of the Aeons, distinctly called the Demiurge, created this world and arrogantly asserted dominion over the same, denying absolutely the authority of the supreme parent. The Gnostic doctrines declares man to be a union of a body, which being the creation of the Demiurge, is essentially evil, and a spirit, which being derived from deity, is characteristically good. The spirits thus imprisoned in evil bodies will be finally liberated, and then the power of the Demiurge will cease, and the earth will be dissolved into nothingness. Our justification for introducing here this partial summary of Gnosticism is the fact that early efforts were made to accommodate the tenets of this system to the demands of Christianity, and that Christ and the Holy Ghost were declared to belong to the family of Aeons, provided for in this scheme. This led to the extravagant absurdity of denying that Jesus had a body even while he lived as a man, and that his appearance as a corporal being was a deception of the senses wrought by his supernatural power. That the doctrines of the Gnostics were unsatisfying even to those who professed to believe therein is evident from the many cults and parties that came into existence as subdivisions of the main sect. And it is interesting to note that in modern times certain freethinkers have prided themselves in assuming a title expressing the full antithesis of the name Gnostics, namely Agnostics. The practical effect of the principles of Gnosticism in the lives of its adherents is strangely diverse. One division of the sect followed a life of austerity, embracing rigorous self-denial and bodily torture, in the vain belief that the malignant body could thus be subdued, while the spirit would be given added power and increased freedom. Another cult sought to minimize the fundamental difference between right and wrong by denying the element of mortality in human life, and these abandoned themselves to the impulses of the passions and the frailties of the bodily nature without restraint on the assumption that there was no such relation between body and soul as would cause injury to the latter through bodily indulgences and excesses. Another sect, or school, whose doctrines were in a measure amalgamated with those of Christianity was that of the New Platonics. The ancient sects of Platonists, or Platonics, were allied in some points of doctrine 
with the Epicureans, and were rivals, if not opponents, of the Stoics. The early Platonics held that unorganized matter has existed from all eternity, and that its organizer, God, is similarly eternal. As God is eternal, so also his will, or intelligence, is without beginning. And this eternal intelligence existed as the will or intent of deity was called the Logos. Such precepts had been taught long before the Christian era, and the philosophy professed by some of the contending sects among the Jews in the time of Christ had been influenced thereby. As the principles of Christianity became generally known, certain leaders in the sect of Platonics found in the new doctrine much to study and admire. By this time, however, Platonism itself had undergone much change, and the more liberal adherents had formed a new organization and distinguished themselves by the appellation Neuplatonics. These professed to find in Jesus Christ the incarnation of the Logos, and accepted with avidity the declaration of St. John, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. According to the eclectic or Neuplatonic philosophy, the Word referred to by St. John was the Logos, described by Plato. The Platonic conception of the Godhead as consisting of the Deity and the Logos was enlarged in accordance with Christian tenets to embrace three members, the Holy Ghost being the third. Thence arose bitter and lasting dissension as to the relative powers of each member of the Trinity, particularly the position and authority of the Logos, or Son. The many disputes incident to the admixture of Platonic theory with Christian doctrine continued through the centuries, and in a sense may be said to trouble the minds of men even in this modern age. It is wholly beyond our purpose to classify or describe the hybrid offspring resulting from the unnatural union of pagan philosophy and Christian truth, nor shall we attempt to follow in detail the dissensions and quarrels on theological points and questions of doctrine. Our purpose is achieved when by statement of fact and citation of authority the reality of the apostasy is established. We shall consider, therefore, only the most important of the dissensions by which the church was troubled. About the middle of the third century, Sibelius, a presbyter or bishop of the church in Africa, strongly advocated the doctrine of Trinity in Unity as characterizing the Godhead. He claimed that the divine nature of Christ was no distinct nor personal attribute of the man Jesus, but merely a portion of the divine energy, an emanation from the Father, with which the Son was temporarily endowed, and that in like manner the Holy Ghost was a part of the divine Father. These views were as vigorously opposed by some as defended by others, and the disagreement was rife when Constantine so suddenly changed the status of the Church and brought to its support the power of the state. Early in the fourth century, the dispute assumed a threatening aspect in the bitter contention between Alexander, bishop of Alexandria, and Arius, one of the subordinate officers of the same church. Alexander proclaimed that the Son was in all respects the equal of the Father, and also of the same substance or essence. Arius insisted that the Son had been created by the Father, and therefore could not be co-eternal with his divine parent, that the Son was the agent through whom the will of the Father was executed, and that for this reason also the Son was inferior to the Father both in nature and dignity. 
in like manner the holy ghost was inferior to the other members of the godhead arianism as the doctrine came to be known was preached with vigor and denounced with energy and the dissension thus occasioned threatened to rend the church to its foundation at last the emperor constantine was forced to intervene in an effort to establish peace among his contending churchmen he summoned a council of church dignitaries which assembled in the year 325 and which is known from its place of session as the council of nice this council condemned the doctrine of arius and pronounced sentence of banishment against its author what was declared to be the orthodox doctrine of the universal or catholic church respecting the godhead was promulgated as follows we believe in one god the father almighty the maker of all things visible and invisible and in one lord jesus christ the son of god begotten of the father only begotten that is of the substance of the father god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made of the same substance with the father by whom all things were made that are in heaven and that are in earth who for us men and for our salvation descended and was incarnate and became man suffered and rose again the third day ascended into the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead and in the holy spirit but those who say there was a time when he the son was not and that he was not before he was begotten and that he was made out of nothing or affirm that he is of any other substance or essence or that the son of god was created and mutable or changeable the catholic church doth pronounce accursed this is the generally accepted version of the nicene creed as originally promulgated in form it was somewhat modified though left practically unchanged as to essentials by the council held at constantinople half a century later what is regarded as a restatement of the nicene creed has been attributed to athanasius one of the chief opponents of arianism though his right to be considered the author is questioned by many and emphatically denied by some authorities on ecclesiastical history nevertheless the statement referred to has found a place in literature as the creed of athanasius and whether rightly or wrongly named it persists as a declaration of belief professed by some christian sects to-day it has a present place in the prescribed ritual of the church of england the creed of athanasius reads as follows we worship one god in trinity and trinity in unity neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance for there is one person of the father another of the son and another of the holy ghost but the godhead of the father son and holy ghost is all one the glory equal the majesty co-eternal such as the father is such is the son and such is the holy ghost the father uncreate the son uncreate and the holy ghost uncreate the father incomprehensible the son incomprehensible and the holy ghost incomprehensible the father eternal the son eternal and the holy ghost eternal and yet there are not three eternals but one eternal and also there are not three incomprehensibles nor three uncreated but one uncreated and one incomprehensible so likewise the father is almighty the son almighty and the holy ghost almighty and yet there are not three almighties but one almighty so the father is god the son is god and the holy ghost is god 
and yet they are not three gods, but one god. The Council of Nicaea is known in ecclesiastical history as one of the most famous and important gatherings ever assembled as an official body concerned with church administration. Not only was the Arian dispute disposed of, so far as ecclesiastical decree could dispose of a question vitally affecting the individual conscience, but many other subjects of controversy were similarly quieted for the time. Thus the long-standing dispute as to the time of celebrating Easter was settled by vote, as was also the question agitated by Novitus and his followers, as to the propriety of readmitting repentant apostates to the church, and the schism caused by Meletius, a bishop of Upper Africa, who had refused to recognize the superior authority of the bishop of Alexandria. From the number and diversity of the questions brought before the Nicene Council for adjudication, we may safely conclude that the newly enthroned church was not characterized by unity of purpose nor harmony of action. However, compared with the bitter contentions that follow, the dissensions in the reign of Constantine were but as the beginnings of trouble. The moral effect of the potent spirit of apostasy operating through the first three centuries of the church's existence and nourished by the contributions of heathen philosophy proved, as was inevitable, highly injurious and evil. Some of the most pernicious of these effects it becomes our duty to consider. Perverted view of life. One of the heresies of early origin and rapid growth in the church was the doctrine of antagonism between body and spirit, whereby the former was regarded as an incubus and a curse. From what has been said, this will be recognized as one of the perversions derived from the alliance of Gnosticism with Christianity. A result of this grafting in of heathen doctrines was an abundant growth of hermit practices, by which men sought to weaken, torture, and subdue their bodies, that their spirits, or souls, might gain greater freedom. Many who adopted this unnatural view of human existence retired to the solitude of the desert, and there spent their time in practices of stern self-denial and in acts of frenzied self-torture. Others shut themselves up as voluntary prisoners, seeking glory and privation and self-imposed penance. It was this unnatural view of life that gave rise to the several orders of recluses, hermits, and monks. Think you not that the Savior had such practices in mind when warning the disciples of the false claims to sanctity that would characterize the times then soon to follow. He said, Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he, Christ, is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. When the church came into the favor of the state under Constantine in the fourth century, there sprang up many orders of recluses who maintained that communion with God was to be sought by mortifying sense, by withdrawing the mind from all external objects, by macerating the body with hunger and labor, and by a holy sort of indolence, which confined all the activity of the soul to a lazy contemplation of things spiritual and external. Moshim, the author just quoted, continues, The Christian church would never have been disgraced by this cruel and unsocial enthusiasm, nor would any have been subjected to those keen torments of mind and body to which it gave rise. 
had not many Christians been unwarily caught by the specious appearance and the pompous sound of that maxim of the ancient philosophy, that in order to atonement of true felicity and communion with God, it was necessary that the soul should be separated from the body, even here below, and that the body was to be macerated and mortified for this purpose. The fruit of this ill-sowing was the growth of numerous orders of monks and the maintenance of monasteries. Celibacy was taught as a virtue, and came to be made a requirement of the clergy, as it is in the Roman Catholic Church today. An unmarried clergy, deprived of the elevating influences of home life, fell into many excesses, and the corruption of the priests has been a theme of reproach throughout the centuries. The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And again, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. His inspired apostle proclaimed, Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Nevertheless, an apostate church decrees that its ministers shall be forbidden to follow the law of God. Disregard for Truth As early as the fourth century, certain pernicious doctrines embodying a disregard for truth gained currency in the church. Thus it was taught that it was an act of virtue to deceive and lie, when by that means the interests of the church might be promoted. Needless to say, sins other than those of falsehood and deceit were justified when committed in the supposed interests of church advancement, and crime was condoned under the specious excuse that the end justifies the means. Many of the fables and fictitious stories relating to the lives of Christ and the apostles, as also the spurious accounts of supernatural visitations and wonderful miracles, in which the literature of the early centuries abound, are traceable to this infamous doctrine that lies are acceptable unto God if perpetrated in a cause that man calls good. End of chapter 7